Good evening. So we're doing a review tonight uh, of approaching the Buddhist path. So let's get into our meditation posture and we'll start by cultivating our motivation. So whatever happens, we have this wonderful opportunity to listen again to the heart advice of His Holiness the Dalai Lama as expressed by his dedicated student, Bhikshuni Tupton Chodron. So a lot of the material that we're going to listen to and discuss and reflect on tonight, we've heard before. And it would be very good if we all guard against the mind that says, I know this. I've got this. And instead, just keep our mind very open and curious to see how these words that we've heard before will land this evening. Because we've all changed since the last time we've heard this material. And we're continuing to change. And through participating in this review, we can grow our understanding and continue to plant seeds so that in the future, we'll come to this material again and have an even deeper understanding of it. So let's rejoice that we're gathering here tonight, either in this room or online. And just by coming together in this way, We've already made a strong determination that this is what we're going to put our mind to for the next hour and a bit. And that by focusing our attention on this material, slowly, slowly, we're headed towards what we do want in our heart and mind to attain full awakening. Because it's at that point, it's only at that point, we can fulfill what we all want in our heart of hearts, and that is to truly be of benefit to all living beings. So when I looked at the long list of things I could have covered tonight, I thought, well, that would be ambitious. It would be lovely, and we'd be here until 3 (laughs) a.m. I decided that we would just hone in on Chapter 9, which is tools for the path tonight. And there's so much material just in this chapter. Um, I'm going to be picking and choosing, and we'll see what we, we can cover The whole book gives me this feeling, but in this chapter in particular, um, I get the feeling that I'm sitting at a table with His Holiness and Venerable Children. It's like a very intimate conversation. With this book, with this chapter, there's just this intimate feeling of His Holiness 
sitting down with us and saying, okay, you're interested in the Dharma. Some of you have just started. Some of you have been practicing for a while. Some of you have been practicing for decades. And questions arise. Obstacles arise. The question of what do you need to do? What do I need to do? Often comes up for any level of practitioner. And the advice he gives is just so down to earth. It's so it's given in such a caring, thorough way. Um, it's just really touching to go through this material again and again. And for sure, I can speak for myself. Um, I'm sure I will never have the chance to meet His Holiness in person. He'll never know my name. He might meet some of you here, and he'll know your name eventually. But I'm pretty sure in this life I won't meet him in that way. But it feels like the connection is there through our teacher of animal children, through these magnificent volumes in the Library and Compassion uh, series. So if your mind starts to say, oh, I, this is just so rudimentary, I just know this. If your mind starts saying that tonight, or your eyelids start to lower, well, I'll be the one that sees that, <laughs> and I'll move along. But just maybe, you know, prod yourself to think, you know, this is really beautiful material. How wonderful that I get to even just hear it again. And may this, you know, just plant seeds again. For sure, it's not coming from venerable children. That's, that's a fact. But the words uh, she has written and the teachings come from His Holiness, so it's really worth doing. So His Holiness starts off with this statement. To practice the Dharma successfully, more than information and a meditation cushion are required. We need a proper motivation and good practical advice that will help to overcome hindrances. Learning the Dharma is different from learning subjects in school. Not only is our motivation different, we seek the method to attain fortunate rebirths, liberation, or awakening. But also the methodology is different. Our spiritual mentors present topics that are comparatively easy to understand, as well as those that are more challenging in the same Dharma talk. Sometimes their response to our questions leads to more confusion. Well, I'm sure we've all had this experience, where we hear something, we ask a question, we might have even written the question a week in advance just to make sure we're not going to waste one of our children's time or any teacher's time. And then the answer comes and it's like, what? So I'm wondering if anyone would like to share an experience you've had where you've asked a question and you've come out even more confused. And then the next part of this question is, and then what did you do about the confusion? So hopefully some of these questions were sent out online too, so that our online audience, of course they can't hear what I'm saying, right? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> then uh, feel free to write in. Yes, Vinwal Tarpa, thanks. Oh, thank you. Um, so a long time ago, I asked a question of Vinable Children about um, I, I can't remember exactly how the question went, but I know that I was having trouble confusing the self-centered thought with my own sense of self. And I, was, I, I just had a difficult time hearing her teachings about the self-centered thought for, it was like a year and a half where it was 
quite challenging to sit in this room. Um, and I remember that I, she said to me, well, the problem is, is that you can't separate out the self-centered th thought from yourself. But she never told me that you had to realize emptiness to be able to do that. <laughs> so I, I just had to um, kind of bear it. And the thing that helped me was to actually, sometimes I'd hear her say things and I would like have a lot of emotional reaction to them. And then I'd go back and listen to them on tape and they, or the audio, and I didn't hear anything in her words that I was thinking I was hearing when I heard them. And I just couldn't deny this because it happened a number of times, you know, like, I'm, just the way I was hearing it, my mind was so afflicted that I couldn't bear it. <laughs> so even just hear, the way I was hearing the words was very inaccurate. So that was helpful. That's what I did. I kind of um, just kept learning, you know, kind of learning about what I needed to do to work with that. Thank you. She never answered the question. <laughs> So, His Holiness goes on, our mentors instruct us to think about the topic and discuss it with others, but we want them to give us the right answer. Unlike academic studies in the West, where we're expected to remember and understand everything our teacher says so that we can pass a test, this is not necessarily the case in Dharma education. While we should try to remember and reflect on the salient points of a lecture, we're not expected to understand all the intricacies of a topic all at once. Teachers explain a topic to plant seeds in our mind streams so that we'll become familiar with the vocabulary. Having heard the topic once, the next time we hear it, we'll be able to focus on the concepts being presented. So this advice, I think, is just fantastic advice that I have to remind myself of all the time. And a number of people in the room and a number of people online now are also being safe online facilitators. And I, I know from facilitating courses, and you know this too, that someone who comes into a safe 1A course, or actually any of them, at a certain point, frustration will set in, sometimes by week three, because everyone thinks that they have to have the material mastered when they've only really maybe read the material once, especially in 1A and 1B, or maybe any of the, these courses. And so this whole way of thinking that I totally get starts like, I'm not smart enough. Everybody in my class, they're posting better forum posts than I am. I'm really getting far behind just because I'm not getting it. Maybe I should stop. I think I should stop. I think I'm just holding the class back. And actually, all we need to do is just sort of, you know, Venerable Children calls that rubbish thinking. Put the pause button on and just realize, you know, there's some weeks where I have to read it three or four times, the teaching before I can really honestly put something in the forum that would make sense. And so, you know, we forget that our Western education has set, it up, set us up sort of to fail for a little while until we hear the advice that we just have to keep hearing the teachings again and again and again, and that our mind is changing, and then we'll get to this topic of merit and purification in a few minutes. So His Holiness continues, we need to be patient with ourselves and let go of unrealistic expectations of quick attainments. 
We should also avoid comparing ourselves to others and feeling proud that we are more advanced than our friends or lamenting that we lag behind them. Each person has different predispositions from previous lives, so no two people will progress at the same speed or in the same way. Comparison of this sort only breeds jealousy, arrogance, and competition, qualities that waste time and are not conducive for transforming our mind. So another question that I've thrown out to people is, so this thing of comparing ourselves to others. What are some reasons that His Holiness gives us why we should really work against doing that? When studying the Dharma. Or is it just a fine thing to do? Helpful? We have different karmic imprints. So we come into this life with skills and um, not skills that are different than other people. Yeah. So... From your own experience, what are some of the results of comparing yourself to others? <laughs> and what did you then do to counteract this kind of mind that loves to do that? Because, boy, is it painful. It takes a lot of um, space in the mind, and so you don't have, I don't have enough capacities then for really focusing on the topic I should rather focus on. Yeah. And um, it disconnects me from the people I'm comparing myself to. Mm. And it um, has a very bad effect on my uh, self-esteem that is mm -hmm. maybe already sometimes not that strong. And then um, I'm adding <laughs> just more to it to make it stronger, mm -hmm. the lack of self-esteem. I try to, I'm working on trying to remind myself that their good qualities don't take away my good qualities. Mm -hmm. That just because they have good qualities doesn't diminish them. But by my dwelling on the negative parts of it and cultivating jealousy and competition does create, diminish my good qualities. <laughs> so just really focusing that it's not a, a good thing or a bad thing, that it doesn't yeah, increase their it's not an equal equation. It's both of us can have good qualities. Thank you. I think conversely, just because someone doesn't see my good qualities, it doesn't mean they're not there. Online, people have said that to meditate on equanimity as an antidote, um, to see that the other person is just like me, um, and that comparing brings fear and anxiety. Um, and that it helps me to rejoice in others' good qualities and fortunate situations. And you know, yes. I like that point from the Lamrim about how when you die, you're alone. So that's really what counts is, you know, it's my own mind that I should be paying attention to. And when I die, who cares how well they're doing? Mm -hmm. You know, what's the state of my mind? So I know my mm -hmm. attention is way off if I keep dwelling on somebody else's accomplishments. That's a good antidote. And what I do too is, um, it works for my mind. I just think about how everyone has been raised. 
And if you ever spend time with a family, every family has its own language. It's just amazing. They have their own way of figuring life out. And so everyone in this room has had profoundly different experiences growing up. And we've done different kinds of training, and we've had different things that we've excelled at. And so how could we possibly come to this topic in the same way? You know, it's just, it's sort of like um, even a sport. Some people are going to be able to throw that ball with a little bit more dexterity than the other person, but the other person, if you show them how to throw the ball with some practice, they can probably even be a better ball thrower than the person who has natural ability. And so, you know, we come to learning of anything, including the Dharma, with all of this richness that we then want to, you know, (coughs) sort of color it as having, being lacking. It's just a crazy mind that starts doing this comparing thing. And if we just had this mind of seeing the richness of what we can bring to a topic, then the, the competition can really, you know, just dissolve. It's really um, a rubbish kind of mind, as Venerable Children says. Then His Holiness goes on, similarly, due to karmic connections in previous lives, our friends may be drawn to a particular teacher who does not particularly inspire us and vice versa. Rather than be influenced by peer pressure, we must choose our teachers depending on the quality of guidance we receive from them and the depth of connection that we feel with them. We should avoid comparing the practices that our teachers instruct us to do with those our friends are prescribed. Because no two sentient beings are identical, the Buddha taught a wide variety of practices to people so people could find those suitable for them. That does not make one practice better than another. It simply means that one practice is more suitable for one person and a different practice for another person. So I think this points to the fact that when we are deciding on who our teachers will be or teacher will be, naturally, we've probably all been in the situation where we went to a Dharma talk with a friend. And then naturally our mind is thinking, well, you know, this is my friend, we have a lot in common, that's her teacher, that's his teacher, that must be my teacher. And then if you spend a little bit more time in this situation, I've been in the situation where it was clear that that teacher was really good for that group of people, but somehow it just wasn't working for me. And this was long before I knew anything about karmic connections and not very much about karma. But it was just pretty clear that, you know, I appreciated what they were getting from this teacher, but, oh my goodness, it just wasn't working for me. So it's very good to use discretion and not assume that uh, what works for some will work for everyone. Okay, I think we're going to now move on into the area where His Holiness is going to talk about wisdom and faith. So he says, wisdom and faith complement and reinforce each other on the path. Whereas faith enables us to be inspired and receptive, wisdom gives us a clear mind that understands both conventional existence and ultimate reality. Wisdom is an analytical mind that deeply understands its object, such as impermanence or selflessness. Analysis is not intellectual gymnastics used to impress others. 
It involves deep investigation into the nature of objects and leads to understanding and knowledge. Faith is confidence and trust in the three jewels. It is not blind belief. It's a virtuous and joyous mental factor. It enriches our spiritual practice and arises when we admire the three jewels, when we aspire to be like them or deeply understand the teachings. Accordingly, the mind and awareness texts speak of three types of faith or trust. Admiring faith, aspiring faith, and believing faith. Now, I'm going to read the definitions for each of these three. I won't ask you to tell me what they are. But I know for a fact that before I met the Dharma, I was really only acquainted with admiring faith. In the religion that I was raised in, that that was the one that That was the only one that was really talked about. And it is important in the Dharma, and as are the other two. So admiring faith arises when we learn about the excellent qualities of three jewels, or witness the good qualities of our spiritual mentors and admire them. It may also arise from reading the biographies of previous practitioners, contemplating their diligence and determination, and reflecting on the difficulties they overcame to practice the Dharma. This kind of faith clears away mental distress and makes the mind joyful. In extreme cases, admiring faith could degenerate into blind faith, which has little value and may be dangerous. But authentic admiring faith is a vital aid on the path that serves to orient our efforts in a positive direction. So that's admiring faith. Aspiring faith arises when we develop the wish to attain the excellent qualities of the three jewels, It arises from reflecting on the possibility of removing defilements and attaining liberation, and it gives purpose and energy to our practice. When we know the benefits of shamatha and concentration, we have faith in them and aspire to attain them. And then believing faith is of two kinds. The first kind believes the truth of Buddha's teachings because they were taught by the Buddha and our spiritual mentors, and we trust them. This faith may arise due to reasons that we have only partially verified or without applying reasoning. The second type of believing faith is based on conviction and arises after having examined and understood a teaching, because it often involves a reasoning used to verify the topic. This faith is stable. So His Holiness later on goes on to say that all, all these three types of faith are very important. We have to cultivate all three. But in particular, I think eventually we have to put a lot of effort into aspiring and then believing faith in both kinds. So I would like to share with you uh, some very exciting material that has just been published. And I bumped into it when I was actually out of the country six days ago, and I knew that the book wouldn't arrive on time, so I have an e-copy here, and eventually there'll be a hard copy here. Um, Tupton Jimpa has written a biography of Lama Tsongkhapa and has just been published, and it's absolutely beautiful. So I would like to share some bits and pieces tonight since we're on the eve of Ji Tsongkhapa's Paranirvana. And I'm going to start by reading from the introduction that tells a very fascinating story. I've never heard this before. And then I'll ask you a question based on what kind of faith this is addressing. 
On March 18, 1716, an Italian Jesuit priest named Ippolito Desideri reached Tibet's holy city of Lhasa, completing a months-long journey from the Portuguese colony of Goa in southern India. So the year is 1716 in March. A Jesuit priest makes this enormous journey from the south of India to Tibet. Desideri had come to Tibet as a missionary intent on converting the population to Catholicism. He soon came to understand that Tibetans had an advanced intellectual culture of dialectics and reason. Preaching the gospel alone on the assumption of its unquestioned truth would not be adequate to convince Tibetans of the truth of Christianity. If he were to succeed in missionizing Tibet, he would first have to demonstrate the falsity of the Tibetan people's own Buddhist faith. To this end, he plunged into the study of the Tibetan language and Buddhist philosophy. This is a Jesuit priest, 1716. A brilliant individual, Desideri, made quick progress in his education. He studied at Sera Monastery, one of the three great monastic universities of central Tibet. The Italian debated with scholars from Drepung, the largest monastic university in central Tibet, and possibly in the world at that time. While he retained his determination to convert his hosts, Desideri wrote admiringly that although the Tibetans are quite amenable to listening with goodwill, they are not superficial or credulous. They want to see, they want to weigh, they want to discuss everything in great detail. With logical reasoning, they want to be convinced. They don't want to be instructed. More and more, Desideri saw the extent of the task he had taken on in attempting to missionize the Tibetans. He recognized the centrality of the role of critical inquiry in Tibet's spiritual and intellectual tradition. He witnessed the great monastic universities, Sera, Drepung, and Ganden, thriving with stu study, debate, and meditative contemplations. And he saw the profound devotion with which the institution of the Dalai Lama, who he called the Grand Lama, was held by the Tibetan people. Most important from his missionary point of view, he saw that the Tibetan monk's resilience against missionizing was grounded in a deep sense of confidence in their own worldview. Desideri first focused on mastering the Tibetan language, as well as the Tibetan tradition's unique dialectic debate system. He also came to see that he needed to find the right text, a key to unlock the mystery of the Tibetans and their confidence. Soon he believed he had found just such a key. It became clear to him that there existed a text so esteemed by Tibetan scholars that if he could decisively refute it, it would be akin to destroying one of the central pillars of the religion. That text was, any guesses? That text was a great treatise on the stages of the path to enlightenment, popularly known in Tibetan by its shorter name, Lam Rim Chen Mo, a monumental work written by the great 14th century teacher Tsongkhapa. Desideri took extensive notes from the work, copied its entire topical outline, and read the Indian canonical sources cited in Tsongkhapa's text. 
the Jesuit priest described his chosen Tibetan text as a virtual compendium of the 115 volumes of the Kangyur. He wrote that Tsongkhapa sets forth with wonderful organization, style, and clarity all the principles and false beliefs of this sect, and in particular summarizes the abstruse treatises on emptiness. Later, when he wrote his Tibet Missionary Manual, Desideri would insist that those who wish to missionize Tibet must furnish themselves with a personal copy of Tsongkhapa's great treatise, which is, in his words, profuse, admirable, clear, elegant, subtle, clever, methodical, and a most accurate compendium of everything pertaining to that sect. Although Desideri did eventually compose the grand refutation of the great treatise, and thereby he hoped of the Tibetan Buddhist tradition at large that he had set out to write, his work got caught up in the power struggles between rival orders of the Catholic Church. In 1732, the Vatican's sacred congregation for the propagation of the faith confirmed its grant of the Tibet mission to the Capuchin order and barred the publication of any writings from the Jesuit mission. This meant that the four works Desideri had written in Tibetan, most notably his inquiry concerning the doctrines of previous lives and emptiness, would sit unread, gathering dust in the archives of the Society of Jesus in Rome. Following his return to Europe, Desideri would translate Tsongkhapa's great work into Italian, making it the first major Tibetan work to be translated into a European language but that too sat virtually unnoticed for centuries. Desideri's engagement with the great treatise powerfully captures how Tsongkhapa and his legacy appeared to a discerning outsider at the turn of the 18th century. It's no surprise that Desideri chose this work of Tsongkhapa to help open the secrets of Tibetan Buddhism. Imagining the roles reversed, it would be as if a discerning Tibetan of that era were to select St. Thomas Aquinas's Summa Theologica to develop a more systematic understanding of Catholic theology. Anyway, I thought it was a fascinating story I've never heard before. So, this Jesuit priest, what was he counting on attacking? What kind of faith was he hoping to really dismantle just by teaching them Catholicism or Christianity? Admiring faith. He was counting on that because guess what? That's all I was trained in. Um, and I'm not a bitter Catholic, former Catholic. It's just that's what we were trained in. And we were trained not to ask questions. And also, we were told that, not told, we were instructed not to have a Bible in the house because if you had a Bible in the house, you might interpret it your own way. And it's up to the priest to interpret it for the congregation. But I'm very happy about what I learned <laughs> with my upbringing. There was lots of great ethical conduct that was passed on. And that's just what people knew at that time. So this second type of believing faith, this arises from deep conviction that is born from clearly knowing and analyzing the distinction between the Buddha's teachings and those of masters who adhere to views of inherent existence. After examining both teachings with discerning wisdom and clearly seeing the truth in the Buddha's teachings, the wise have no choice 
but to feel great faith, trust, and respect for the Buddha. So quite simply, if we have this last type of believing faith, I think we can't be moved in what we come to understand. His Holiness goes on to say, Learn the teachings well and use reason to reflect on their meaning. If you don't find any logical fallacies or contradictions, you will have believing faith in the path and the possibility of attaining it. That faith in turn will increase your trust in those topics that cannot be understood completely through factual inference, such as the intricacies of karma and its effects. Based on believing that actions bring concordant results is sufficient to help us curb destructive actions and act constructively, thus accumulating merit which aids the increase of wisdom. In Buddhism, wisdom and faith are not contradictory, and when properly cultivated, they increase each other. In fact, there's no fixed order in which faith and wisdom arise. According to individual tendencies, faith may give rise to wisdom, and wisdom may lead to faith, or these two may occur simultaneously. Stabilizing our faith increases our resilience. Stable faith is not affected by the opinions of others and prevents discouragement when viewing others' wrongdoings. Our faith in the Buddha's teaching will not falter should we find a statement in the scriptures or one said by our teacher with which we initially disagree. Instead, with stabilizing faith, we will continue to investigate. So, since His Holiness makes such a point about these three kinds of faith, I thought we'd do a, a brief meditation right now on these three. So what we'll do is, I'll describe each one again, and then I'll ask you a question after each type of faith. So the first instruction His Holiness gives with this meditation is to find examples in our own experience of each of these three. So admiring faith arises when we learn about the excellent qualities of the three jewels or witness the good qualities of our spiritual mentors and admire them. It may also arise from reading the biographies of previous practitioners, contemplating their diligence and determination, and reflecting on the difficulties they overcame to practice the Dharma. So how does admiring faith, once you've brought forth some examples of this, how does this kind of faith contribute to your internal happiness?
Aspiring faith arises when we develop the wish to attain the excellent qualities of the three jewels. It arises from reflecting on the possibility of removing defilements and attaining liberation. And then once you've found an example of this kind of faith, then ask yourself, how does aspiring faith contribute to my internal happiness? And the third kind of faith, believing faith, is of two kinds. The first believes the truth of the Buddha's teachings because they were taught by the Buddha and our spiritual mentors, and we trust them. So again, bring to mind some examples that you've experienced with this kind of faith. And then again, once you have one that's compelling, ask yourself, how does this contribute to my internal happiness?
And the second type of believing faith is based on conviction and arises after having examined and understood a teaching. Because it often involves a reasoning used to verify the topic, this faith is stable. And once you've found an example of this in your experience, again ask yourself, how does this contribute to my inner internal happiness? And the final point in this meditation, we're asked to consider how can we gently increase our faith and trust in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. So now we're going to move to the part of the chapter where His Holiness and Venerable Children discuss purification and collection of merit. Merit is virtuous karma or goodness created by restraining from harmful actions and cultivating constructive ones. It leads to good results in cyclic existence and enriches our minds with positive energy that facilitates gaining spiritual realizations. Merit cannot be seen with our eyes or measured with scientific instruments. Yet it acts as a support for both wisdom and faith to grow in our minds and enables our practice to be successful. If we lack merit, our efforts to cultivate wisdom may result in a corrupt intelligence that reaches the wrong conclusions. Some people are extremely intelligent, but because they are excessively skeptical and critical, they reflexively criticize reasonable theories and beneficial practices. 
nihilistic and cynical, they act in ways that harm themselves and others. A lack of merit also impedes integrating the Dharma into our lives. Some Buddhists study the scriptures extensively and are excellent debaters and great logicians. They can explain the meaning of many scriptures, but their knowledge has not transformed their minds, and their everyday conduct lacks discipline. This indicates the corruption of intelligence due to lack of merit and proper faith. To cultivate wisdom that is capable of transforming our mind, we must accumulate merit and generate faith based on understanding the meaning of the teachings. So he goes on to say, sometimes we feel stuck in our studies and practice. The mind's bored, unresponsive and dull. We have difficulty understanding dharma topics and focusing the mind on virtue. At such times, engaging in purification and the collection of merit is very effective to open the mind and make it receptive to the dharma. This is illustrated in the bi biography of Tsongkhapa. After practicing for many years, he had a meditative vision of Manjushri, the Buddha of wisdom, and was able to converse with him. He consulted Manjushri regarding some difficult points about emptiness. Manjushri answered his questions, but Tsongkhapa still did not understand. So now we're back to this earlier point about getting advice from our teachers. We just don't get it. And Manjushri responded, there is no way for me to explain it to you in an easier fashion. You will be able to understand only if you enhance your meditation with three factors. So these three are, first, make heartfelt supplication to your guru, whom you regard as inseparable from your meditational deity. Second, engage in purification practices and accumulate merit. Third, study the treatises written by the great Indian masters and then reflect and meditate on them. With the help of these three, you will have a true insight into emptiness before long. So as the text continues, Tsongkhapa then went to do retreat at a hermitage near Olka. And there, he made 3.5 million prostrations, 100,000 each to the 35 purification Buddhas, and many thousands of mandala offerings. In addition, he made requests to his guru, whom he viewed as having the same nature as his meditational deity, and continued to study the great treatises as, as advised by Manjushri. The obstacles to his understanding of emptiness cleared, and he realized the correct view. Similarly, these three can rejuvenate our dharma practice whenever our mind feels dry or obscured. So I'd like to turn to uh, Yuptin Jinpa's biography, and there's something more about this. As is customary for purification practice, Tsongkhapa recited the invocation of the 35 confessional Buddhas and performed hundreds, but now we see it's 3.5 million, full-body prostrations on a daily basis. At the end of his period of preliminary practice, the stone floor on which Tsongkhapa performed these prostrations bore visible signs where his hands and head had touched. Similarly, a flat rock Tsongkhapa used during this retreat for the performance of the mandala offering, symbolically offering the entire universe to the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, wiping the surface with the inside of one's right arm and pouring grains over it repeatedly, had been wiped so much that it came to resemble the surface of a mirror. So Tsongkhapa 
even though he's referred to throughout this biography as a Buddha, did not hesitate to do what his teachers advised him to do. He did purification practices. He created merit. He studied all of these Indian treatises. And um, so I think we can hear our own teacher speaking this same advice when we hear this. Then we're going to move on to the section on study, reflection, and meditation. The sutras speak of the threefold practice of study, critical reflection, and meditation, and the understanding or wisdom that is developed by each one. Individually and together, these three enable us to practice skillfully, avoid pitfalls and detours, and gain liberating realization. So the first one, study. In ancient times, the Buddha's teachings were passed down orally, so the first step in learning was to hear the teachings. The broader meaning of hearing includes all forms of study, including reading and new forms of learning. Studying the sutras and tantras, as well as treatises and commentaries by later sages, gives us the necessary information we to know how to practice. Without this first crucial step, we risk making up our own path or practicing it incorrectly. Many people are eager to meditate, which is commendable, he says, but without proper study, they run the risk of going astray. So has anyone here had the experience of going to a place where they offered meditation and you would just sit in the room and you were instructed, I was instructed to just lower my eyes, sit cross-legged as best I could, and then we'd be there for about two and a half hours. Two and a half hours. So I went once. (laughs) I didn't go back. Um, But it was a very good experience because even that two and a half hour experience, first of all, it was physically absolutely torturous. And I didn't have a clue what to do. I fell asleep. I tipped over. I got really angry. I thought, you know, I want to do something else. It It was a very good experience, actually. And I think a lot of people initially... Oh, and then... Not too long after that, I read Cave in the Snow. So I thought, sure, this woman from Britain, she can do 12 years in a cave. That's what I want to do. We've heard venerable children say often enough, hardly anyone can do that. Hardly anyone. So, study has to be the first step. Then reflection. Having studied, we must think about what we've learned. This involves investigation and critical analysis to ascertain the correct meaning, which engenders deep conviction in the veracity of the Dharma. Reflection may be done quietly on our own or together with others, discussing and or debating the teachings. For this reason, monastics engage in rigorous debates that are often entertaining as well as educational. Sometimes we believe we understand a topic well, but discover we don't, because when someone asks us a question or challenges our assertion, we just don't know how to respond. And then the third step, meditation. Based on learning and critical reflection on the teachings, our meditation will be effective. 
The purpose of meditation is to integrate the meaning of the teachings into our mind stream by means of repeated practice. Having correct and stable intellectual understanding due to applying the four principles, we now engage in absorption meditation to familiarize our mind with the topic and transform intellectual understanding into realization. Here, our meditation mainly but not exclusively involves stabilizing meditation done with access or full concentration, although analytical meditation may be applied at times. This produces the understanding arising from meditation which has a powerful ability to transform our mind. So again, I'm going to turn to uh, Tipton Jinpa's biography and read you a section where Zongkapa expresses interest and concern about the way some people were training that he encountered. According to the Tibetan historian Pao Suklak Trengwa, please forgive my pronunciation, the occasion that spurred Tsongkhapa to write his queries was a retreat at which he met a number of longtime meditators who were immersed in intensive practice. Though clearly moved by their dedication to practice, Tsongkhapa was also saddened by what he perceived to be their limited knowledge and understanding of the Dharma including the very practices in which they themselves were engaged. For Tsongkhapa, genuine transformation, attainment of realization in technical Buddhist terminology, arises from a combination of knowledge, meditation and insight, and their expressions in everyday conduct. It's through acquiring knowledge of the truths of our existence as revealed by the Buddha, impermanence, no self and emptiness, and internalizing them through meditative cultivation, that one gains profound insight into these truths. And it is through embodying these truths in our everyday life that our very being will come to be transformed. In contemporary parlance, Tsongkhapa is saying that lasting change has to begin with a change in our mindset, has to be in the way we see ourselves and the world, which then begins to shape our feelings, our behavior, and our way of being in the world. For Tsongkhapa, this is the fundamental insight at the heart of the, of the Tibetan Buddhist framework of view, meditation, and conduct. In this understanding, there is an intimate and dynamic connection between knowledge, insights, and meditative practice. Encountering meditators who had very little understanding of the Dharma seem to have raised in Tsongkhapa a deep feeling of concern. Most probably what Sakya Pandita had written more than a century earlier must have come to Tsongkhapa's mind. And Sakya Pandita wrote, Meditation that is without learning may bring temporary attainments, but those soon fade. So I think we'll finish up tonight with role models. And in this section, His Holiness says, when engaging in a new activity, we naturally look to role models for guidance and inspiration. Spiritual practice is no exception. In the Buddhist Tibetan tradition, the two types of prominent role models we find are the scholar commentators, such as Asanga and Chandrakirti, and the ascetic meditators, such as Saraha or Milarepa. 
Occasionally we find examples of people who are both, such as Naropa, Patra Rinpoche, or Sankapa. Because they're usually depicted in one role or the other, we tend to forget that most of the great scholars were also great yogis, and that the great meditators often became so after years of study and debate in either this or previous lives. Hearing about these historical figures, we, we may receive the unspoken message that to be successful in the Dharma, we have to either become a great scholar or a great meditator. But where does that leave people who are drawn to neither role? What about the average practitioner who does her best according to her own disposition? Each of us wants to feel that we're successful in our own way. We must remember that success in Dharma practice is not dependent on societal recognition. The law of karma and its effects is not duped by hypocrisy. Leaving this life with a great collection of merit, fewer negativities, and the imprints from having heard and practiced many teachings are signs of a successful Dharma practice. Fame is not. So that paragraph is worth writing out on our puja table again and again and saying it again and again and again. Dharma practice is not dependent on societal recognition. Leaving this life with a great collection of merit, fewer negativities and the imprints from having heard and practiced many teachings are the signs of a successful Dharma practice. And then at this point in the book, Venerable Children goes on to speaking about the Buddha as a role model, model for her, of course. And then I thought, since we are on the eve of Jason Kappa's Parnavana, there's a fascinating section in here. Is everyone still okay? Make it a bit further here. It's called, What Was Sankapa Like? Thanks to Naringpa Shime Ragpe, a 15th century Nyingma teacher and a profound admirer of Sankapa, we actually have some idea of what Sankapa looked like in person. As someone from northeastern Tibet, he was quite tall. He was also said to have a largish nose, such that in his student years, his nickname was big-nosed Amdo. According to Naringpa, Sankapa cut a rather imposing figure and everyone within his vicinity would feel his presence. Yet, he had a gentle personality, and he was easy to be with, so that those around him enjoyed his company. Whoever met him immediately felt his naturally compassionate nature. When others, including his own students, asked him questions, whether concerning doubts they might have, difficult points of Buddhist thought, or challenges related to an interpretation of a passage or a text. Tsongkhapa would treat those questions with respect and patience. Before offering his own views, he would delve into the questions with the person so that they could gain a better grasp of the points they were asking about. When addressing someone, he was always polite, rarely addressing them by their name alone, but using their titles such as Kashipa so-and-so, Cheng Gapa, which means senior tutor, so-and-so, or Kenshin great abbot, so-and-so. 
Although he spoke with a hint of an Amdo accent, he was perfectly fluent in the central Tibetan dialect. In fact, this faint accent made his speech melodious. He had a rich voice that projected quite far, so that even those sitting at the edge of the crowd could hear him clearly. Listening to Tsongkhapa teach with eloquence and a natural melody, monks would remark, even days after the end of the teaching session, we would have the feeling of hearing the melody of Tsongkhapa's voice. He would retain this humble and gentle personality throughout his life, even after his emergence as one of the most important religious figures in Tibet. So, I was wondering if anyone has the energy to share who has been or is a role model for you, a spiritual practitioner or even a layperson, someone that brought you to where you are now. I'm ordained now because of Venerable Choden's role model. Um, at DFF, it's probably true for many of us, at DFF she was um, such an incredible teacher, energetic and constantly focused on the Dharma, thinking about others, working on her projects. I remember inviting her to a birthday party one time and she just looked at me like, why would I waste my time doing that? Um, so, yeah, in many regards, Venerable Choden is one of my greatest role models to this day. Thanks, Venerable Sapa. I would agree with that. Um, although she wasn't so mm, connected to all the worldly stuff like the birthday party thing, I remember one time I was at a retreat and it was over um, the holidays, Christmas holidays, and um, many of us were very new there. And she snuck in in the night in the dorm and put uh, chocolate bars by everybody's bed because she knew that we're used to getting, you know, a present. So, you know, so such skillful means um, uh, that she uh, would demonstrate, uh, knew exactly what we needed so that we would stay engaged and, you know, interesting. Thank you. Um, the reason I became a Buddhist <clears throat> was because I read books from Thich Nhat Hanh and the Dalai Lama. And I was, I think the thing that really attracted me to both of them was their life experience in dealing with very, very challenging political situations and human societal situations. And even to this day, I'm still inspired by their speech, their ability to speak in ways that are um, kind in the face of infirm. And, you know, just, it's just, I'm still amazed at how, what they've been, both of those people have been able to hold in their lives. Yeah, me too. Um, His Holiness was uh, um, how he spoke about monastic life. I read about that, and he gave mm, very good reasoning that I wanted to attain. And also, I was um, at that time studying um, at the university and did not find any ground um, and was looking so much for um, something that made sense in life. 
and just reading only his words um, was totally meaningful and captured me and yeah to do his kindness and fast wisdom and such um, um, yeah I found my way then in the end here <laughs> Venerable Semke shares that we have a Dhamma friend of the Abbey who has care for her husband who has dementia for over 10 years and in that time she's made um, many 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 um, satsas that she's given to us has been a source of inspiration and um, yeah, sold her beloved home to downsize and let go and move to a place where she could ha where he could have greater care so she's a true Dhamma practitioner and others have said Sonkapa well I have to chime in and agree that um, the first person that came to my mind was obviously Venerable Churjan. She's the reason I'm a Buddhist. She's the reason that I'm ordained. I went to India and Nepal in 2003 just to learn more about the Dharma. And um, I saw how people, Western monastics, were living there. And I just concluded it was just simply too hard. There was a little bit of interest on my side, but I thought, I can't do that. And, you know, there was one venerable children, but, you know, I thought, well, she can do that, but there's no way that I could ever do that. And so I think that probably is true for just about everyone in the room about why we're here right now. Um, so I think it's a very good practice to reflect on the people that have inspired us in our life, whether they're practitioners or not, and just to see how their influence have shaped us. And it's, um, it really brings a mind of gratitude, I think, and, and a mind of, when we continue to look at their example, a mind of, you know, inspiration that they bring to our, our, our lives. I'm going to just finish off with two paragraphs from His Holiness. And the one is a repeat of one I've done already. So he says, in short, do not become rigid in your notion of a successful Dharma life. Know that due to karma, people have different mentalities and interests, and different opportunities as well. Encourage yourself and encourage others to abandon negativity. Create virtue. Cultivate wisdom and compassion. Respect all practitioners and rejoice at whatever virtue anyone creates. And then I'm going to read it again. We must remember that success in Dharma practice is not dependent on societal recognition. The law of karma and its effects is not duped by hypocrisy. Leaving this life with a great collection of merit, fewer negativities, and the imprints from having heard and practiced many teachings are a sign of a successful Dharma practice. Fame is not. 